Good evening and welcome to the last event on sadly the last day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Robin Marsak and I'm the director of the Scottish Poetry Library and it's my very great privilege to welcome this evening Billy Collins. Now I'm allowed a very brief commercial break here. Um, Catherine says it's not commercial, it's culture. And that's true, because after all, you may be feeling terrible withdrawal symptoms, poetry withdrawal symptoms after the book festival's over, but you needn't, because the Scottish Poetry Library is open <laughs> from 11 to 6 on weekdays, 1 to 5 on Saturdays. And if you don't know where it is, you may know where the newish parliament is. So it's the legislators are near the unacknowledged legislators and we're just up the road from the Parliament. Of course, we have Billy Collins's books on our shelves, or actually, they're more often off our shelves and being borrowed than on the shelves. Billy Collins, as you probably know, was uh, the American Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003, and he is uh, the laureate of his home state, New York. In Britain, we were introduced to his work um, with the slightly provocatively titled um, Taking Off Emily Dickinson's Clothes. <laughs> and his new book is called The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems. Of course, at the library, we felt a little hesitant about having a book called The Trouble with Poetry on our shelves, because we're really concerned with the pleasures of poetry. But we were reassured when we read these lines. The trouble with poetry is that it encourages the writing of more poetry. Now, in the case of Billy Collins, this is pure pleasure. Will you join me in welcoming Billy Collins? Thank you very much, and it's um, this is my first uh, experience with the book festival in Edinburgh, and um, to be the last of uh, what I understand to be a sequence of something like 600 authors is or is not a great honor. <laughs> <coughs> uh, I'm going to assume it's an honor, but. <laughs> um, the last shall be first, so we'll see. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read uh, some poems. And uh, um, I have, you know, to, ra to, to write as sort of an act of hope, you hope someone will be out there to read it. And um, I do have a, a sort of s sense of an author, or a poet, or rather a reader when I'm writing. And um, sometimes when there's not much else to write about, I tend to write a poem or two just that's talks to the reader and tries to maintain our relationship. So uh, I'm going to begin with a poem about uh, my sense of the reader. And it, begin it has an epigraph by Yeats, and it's not from one of his poems. It's just a comment he made, a written I mean, in an essay or whatever. And it's Yeats, uh, I would say, speaking from what's been called his equestrian mode, which is sort of his from his high horse. Um, in which he he says in a kind of uh, rather aloof way he says a poet never speaks directly as to someone at the breakfast table 
So the poem takes issue with that, and it's called A Portrait of the Reader with a Bowl of Cereal. <laughs> Every morning I sit across from you at the same small table, the sun all over the breakfast things, a curve of a blue and white pitcher, a dish of berries, me in a sweatshirt or robe, you invisible. Most days we are suspended over a deep pool of silence. I stare straight through you or look out the window at the garden, the powerful sky, a cloud passing behind a tree. There is no need to pass the toast, the pot of jam, or pour you a cup of tea. And I can hide behind the paper, rotate in its drum of calamitous news. But some days I may notice a little door swinging open in the morning air, and maybe the tea leaves of some dream will be stuck to the china slope of the hour. Then I will lean forward, elbows on the table, with something to tell you, and you will look up, as always, your spoon dripping milk, ready to listen. So that's just a little welcome for you. Well, thank you. <clears throat> I don't know if you know a photographer named Harold Edgerton. He's not that well known, but he was li he was a kind of a not an art photographer, but a science photographer. And better known is uh, a kind of cousin of his uh, in terms of photography, uh, Edward Mybridge, who took all those photographs of sequential action of galloping horses and men throwing medicine balls and tights and whatever <laughs> interested him at the time. <clears throat> and uh, Edgerton was interested in the ability of photography, once it, it reached high-speed capacity, to capture moments of violent impact. So there's a famous photograph of his, of a, it's a football, and it's being kicked by a boot, and it's all uh, bent out of shape, and you can kind of see what you can't see with the naked eye. Um, so this is a one of, uh, based on one of his photographs. It's called Ballistics. When I came across the high-speed photograph of a bullet that had just pierced a book, the pages exploding with the velocity, I forgot all about the marvels of photography and began to wonder which book the photographer had selected for the shot. <laughs> Many novels sprang to mind, <laughs> including those of Raymond Chandler, where an extra bullet would hardly be noticed. Nonfiction offered too many choices, a history of Scottish lighthouses, a biography of Joan of Arc, and so forth. Or it could be an anthology of medieval literature, the bullet having just beheaded Sir Gawain and scattered the band of assorted pilgrims. But later, as I was drifting off to sleep, I realized that the executed book was a recent collection of poems written by someone of whom I was not fond and that the bullet must have passed through his writing with little resistance. <laughs> At 2,800 feet per second, through the poems about his sorry childhood and the ones about the dreary state of the world, and then through the author's photograph, <laughs> through the beard, the round glasses, and that special poet's hat he loves to wear. and fill in the blank yourself there. 
I don't know why I was reading this book. I was reading a book on how to write fiction. Apparently I was depressed or <clears throat> thinking of a career change. But I came across under do's and don'ts. I came across one of the don'ts. And I'd heard about this don't in fiction before. Uh, and it stands as a little epigraph here. And it, the quote is, never use the word suddenly just to create tension. Um, this is not, the, the advice is, is, is old. Uh, and and the, the most flagrant example I'd ever heard was something like, uh, I pointed the gun at her head and pulled the trigger. Suddenly, shots rang out. <laughs> but I always like to define poetry as kind of opposed to prose in some ways. And so I thought, well, you can't use suddenly in, in prose, but in fiction, but you can use it in poetry. So, I, so the poem is called Tension. Suddenly, you were planting some yellow petunias outside in the garden. <laughs> And suddenly, I was in the study looking up the word oligarchy for the 37th time. <laughs> when suddenly, without warning, you planted the last petunia in the flat, and I suddenly closed the dictionary, now that I was reminded of that vile form of governance. A moment later, we found ourselves standing suddenly in the kitchen, where you suddenly opened a can of cat food. And I just as suddenly watched you doing that. <laughs> I observed a window of leafy activity, and beyond that a bird perched on the edge of a stone birdbath, when suddenly you announced you were leaving to pick up some things at the market. <laughs> and I stunned you by impulsively pointing out that we were getting low on butter, <laughs> and that another case of wine would not be a bad idea. Who could tell what the next moment would hold? <laughs> another drip from the faucet, another little spasm of the second hand. Would the painting of a bowl of pears continue to hang on the wall from that nail? Would the heavy anthologies remain on their shelves? Would the stove hold its position? Suddenly it was anyone's guess. <laughs> the sun rose ever higher, the state capitals remained motionless on the wall map when suddenly I found myself lying on a couch where I closed my eyes and without any warning began to picture the Andes of all places and a path that led over the mountain to another country with strange customs and eye-catching hats suddenly fringed with colorful little dangling balls. <laughs> <clears throat> Thanks. I usually don't I use a lot of epigraphs, but these poems seem everyone seems to have one, and they're not really decorative. They're part of the poem. This one is a quotation I heard a long time ago. I was very impressed by it at the time. And um, well, the quotation is, "Poems are never completed; they are only abandoned." And that's sunk in. It sounded, it's, it's by Paul Valéry, uh, the French poet. And I thought, you know, it's very um, paradoxical and insightful and French. And so I started repeating this in my classrooms and I started hearing it from other poets and in interviews. And then I got really tired of the quote. 
And uh, I don't buy it anyway. I mean, I spend a lot of time finishing my poems. I never, <laughs> never ab abandon them. If I abandon them, they go in the wastebasket. So I wrote this poem really to repudiate uh, the quotation and, and my misuse of it. It's called January in Paris. That winter, I had nothing to do but tend the kettle in my shredded room on the top floor of a pension near a cemetery. But I would sometimes descend the stairs, unlock my bicycle, and pedal along the cold city streets, often turning from a wide boulevard down a narrow side street bearing the name of an obscure patriot. I followed a few private rules, never crossing a bridge without stopping, midpoint, to lean my bike on the railing and observe the flow of the river below as I tried to better understand the French. In my pale coat and my Basque cap, I pedaled past the windows of a patisserie or sat up tall in the seat, arms folded, and clicked downhill, filling my nose with winter air. I would see beggars and street cleaners in their bright uniforms, and sometimes I would see the poems of Valerie, the ones he never finished but abandoned, wandering the streets of the city, <laughs> half-clothed. Most of them needed only a final line or two, a little verbal flourish at the end, but whenever I approached, they would retreat from their makeshift fires into the shadows, thin specters of incompletion, forsaken for so many decades, how could they ever trust another man with a pen? <laughs> I came across the one I wanted to tell you about, sitting with a glass of rosé at a cafe table, beautiful, emaciated, unfinished, cruelly abandoned with a flick of panache by Monsieur Paul Valéry himself, big fish in the school of symbolism, and for a time president of the Committee of Arts and Letters of the League of Nations, if you please. Never mind how I got her out of the cafe, past the concierge, and up the flights of stairs. Remember that Paris is the capital of public kissing. And never mind the holding and the pressing. It is enough to know that I move my pen in such a way so as to bring her to completion. <laughs> a simple final stanza which ended as this poem will with the image of a gorgeous orphan lying on a rumpled bed, her large eyes closed, a painting of cows in a valley over her head, and off to the side, me in a window seat, blowing smoke from a cigarette at dawn. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> and this is a little poem called Adage. Adage. When it's late at night and branches are banging against the windows, you might think that love is just a matter of leaping out of the frying pan of yourself into the fire of someone else. But it's a little more complicated than that. It's more like trading the two birds who might be hiding in that bush for the one you are not holding in your hand. <laughs> a wise man once said that love was like forcing a horse to drink. 
But then everyone stopped thinking of him as wise. <laughs> Let us be clear about something. Love is not as simple as getting up on the wrong side of the bed wearing the emperor's clothes. No, it's more like the way the pen feels after it has defeated the sword. It's, little, it's a little like the penny saved or the nine drop stitches. You look at me through the halo of the last candle and tell me that love is an ill wind that has no turning, a road that blows no good. But I am here to remind you, as our shadows tremble on the walls, that love is the early bird who is better late than never. <laughs> So thank you, um, thank you. So um, I'll read a few poems from this um, newer book called *The Trouble with Poetry* that Robin referred to with a certain degree of ambivalence as a poetry librarian. Um, the trouble with poetry. The trouble with poetry. I realized as I walked along a beach one night cold Florida sand under my bare feet, a show of stars in the sky. The trouble with poetry is that it encourages the writing of more poetry, more guppies crowding the fish tank, more baby rabbits hopping out of their mothers into the dewy grass. And how will it ever end unless the day finally arrives when we have compared everything in the world to everything else in the world? <laughs> And there is nothing left to do then but quietly close our notebooks and sit with our hands folded on our desks. Poetry fills me with joy and I rise like a feather in the wind. Poetry fills me with sorrow and I sink like a chain flung from a bridge. But mostly poetry fills me with the urge to write poetry, to sit in the dark and wait for a little flame to appear at the tip of my pencil. And along with that, the longing to steal, to break into the poems of others with a flashlight and a ski mask. And what an unmerry band of thieves we are, cut purses, common shoplifters. I thought to myself as a cold wave swirled around my feet and the lighthouse moved its megaphone over the sea, which is an image I stole directly from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. <laughs> to be perfectly honest for a moment, the bicycling poet of San Francisco whose little amusement park of a book I used to carry in a side pocket of my uniform up and down the treacherous halls of high school. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna read a poem that is uh, also involves um, stealing, in this case even worse than taking an image from someone and then it's but it's, it's good to confess right away to the everyone loves a you know reformed person these days so get away with anything as long as you're sorry the next minute um, but in this case I, I've taken the first two lines of someone's poem and I just turned it into my poem rewriting the poem for this poet and the reason I did that is that I 
came across this poem in a magazine. It's a it's a love poem. It's addressed to the beloved. It indulges in a um, you know a kind of literary device or a romantic strategy or both that is hundreds of years old. And the device is that you the assumption is that you make great headway with the beloved if you can compare her to things that women love to be compared to things they don't women don't like they don't appreciate loyalty <laughs> or affection <laughs> or respect fidelity what women want are similes <laughs> right? in their hearts they want to be compared to stuff So um, so this fellow has about a 40-line love poem in which the woman is compared to just about anything he can think of. So I wrote this as a little um, corrective, and um, it's called Litany. And his lines are, you, to her, right, you are the bread in the, looking into her eyes, you are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. I begin the same way. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh bird suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards. And you are certainly not the pine-scented air there is no way you are the pine-scented air. <laughs> it is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. I also happen to be the shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread of the knife. You are still the bread of the knife. <laughs> you will always be the bread and the knife, not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. I'm going to read two poems about dogs. I, I read the other day in uh, down in Albra in uh, East Anglia. Someone came after after and said, he, "said you say dogs like dogs." I didn't know as a. I said, "How do you say it in England?" And he said, "Dogs." <laughs> <laughs> but in the South they say dogs. I mean, I'm not that bad, but. So I'm going to read a poem about my dog and then a poem about sort of a different species of dog. And the poem about my dog is called Dharma because I'm trying to uh, figure out if this dog has a kind of Zen quality.
to it, to her. Dharma. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money or the keys to her doghouse, never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. <laughs> Who provides a finer example of a life without encumbrance? Thoreau, in his curtainless hut with a single plate, a single spoon, Gandhi, with his staff and his wire spectacles. Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her, mo but her brown coat and her modest blue collar, following only her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing, followed only by the plume of her tail. If only she did not shove the cat aside every morning <laughs> and eat all his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes, if only I were not her god. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this uh, next poem was written with uh, intention because um, I, I write a lot about dogs. Dogs come in and out of my poetry, and I teach, uh, you know, I teach um, or conduct creative writing workshops, and um, it's easy to give out advice to younger poets. But one solid piece of advice I have for them is, you know, if you get stuck in a poem, just have a dog come in, <laughs> because it will, you'll get over, it'll be a little break from your self-absorption, you know, and uh, and uh, yeah, dogs just cheer things up generally when they walk into a stanza. Um, but the risk uh, of, of, tell, of saying that to, to younger poets is that you know, they write very sentimental poems. And probably that last poem you know, was guilty of having, of having some dewy-eyed lines in it. But, so um, as a preface, I, I wanted to write a poem that was sort of free of, uh, about a dog that was free of, 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 of sentimentality. And this was the result. It's called The Revenant, in other words, a ghost, a, vi a visitor from beyond. The Revenant. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion. Come back to tell you this simple thing, I never liked you. <laughs> when I licked your face, I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. <laughs> I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, a napkin on your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak, a trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal, and greatest of insults, shake hands without a hand. <laughs> I admit the sight of the leash would excite me, but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched. <laughs> you, do want, you do not want to believe this, but I have no reason to lie. I hated the car, hated the rubber toys, disliked your friends and worse your relatives. <laughs> the jingling of my tags drove me mad. 
You always scratched me in the wrong place. All I ever wanted from you was food and fresh water and my metal bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place, except what you already supposed, and are glad it did not happen sooner, that everyone here can read and write, the dogs in poetry, the cats and all the others in prose. <laughs> Thanks. I came across an expression yesterday or the day before, and um, so I've I've having just wrote this the other day, so I'm working on it today. So I tried to try it out, and um, I'd never heard this expression before, and I kind of misunderstood it. Uh, it's called baby listening. According to the guest information directory. Baby listening is a service offered by this seaside hotel. Baby listening, not a baby who happens to be listening. <laughs> Leave the receiver off the hook, the guide advises, and the infant's breathing can be monitored by the staff, though the staff, the guide continues, cannot be held responsible for the well-being of the baby in question. <laughs> Fair enough, someone to listen to your baby. But I first thought of a baby who was listening, lying there in the room next to me, listening to my pen scratching against the page, or a more advanced baby who has crawled down the hallway of the hotel and is pressing its tiny curious ear to my door. <laughs> Lucky for me, poetry is the place where both are true, where no one can stand to say only one thing at a time. Poetry wants the baby listening at my door and the baby sleeping quietly by the telephone, not to mention the baby who is making sounds of distress into the curled receiver while the girl at reception has just stepped out to enjoy a smoke with her boyfriend in the dark by the sway and wash of the sea. Poetry wants that baby too, maybe even a little more than the others. Is that a common expression, baby listening? Not to, uh, not that much. I mean, it, uh, okay. Well, I'd never heard it before, but I maybe it's a little paranoia just thinking of babies somehow. <laughs> babies listening to you. Um, okay, here's a. Um, Maybe I'll write. I mean, I'll read a little, uh, a little. Uh, oh, a couple of short poems. Let me let me do that. Um, this one also has a little epigraph. I was reading a book about uh, printing, and I came across this sentence that jumped out at me. And the sentence was that um, each copy of the uh, it has been calculated that each copy of the Gutenberg Bible require the skins of 300 sheep. And so it's a fairly short poem called Flock. 
I can see them squeezed into the holding pen behind the stone building where the printing press is housed, all of them squirming around to find a little room and looking so much alike it would be nearly impossible to count them, and there is no telling which one will carry the news that the Lord is a shepherd, one of the few things they already know. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I read there's a, two, uh, two other uh, fairly short ones. You hear this on the radio. If you listen to the radio um, anywhere, I think you hear this kind of announcement. And the poem is called Surprise. This, according to the voice on the radio, the host of a classical music program, no less, this is the birthday of Vivaldi. He would be 325 <laughs> years old today, quite bent over, I would imagine, and not able to see much through his watery eyes. Surely he would be deaf by now, the clothes flaking off him, hair pitiably sparse. But we would throw a party for him anyway, a surprise party, where everyone would hide behind the furniture to listen for the tap of his cane on the pavement and the sound of his dry, persistent cough. And this is even, this is a little eight-line poem called, uh, called No Time, No Time. In a rush this weekday morning, I tap the horn as I speed past the cemetery where my parents lie buried side by side under a smooth slab of granite. Then, all day long, I think of him rising up to give me that look of knowing disapproval while my mother calmly tells him to lie back down. <laughs> to kind of get get them in a moment there. Um, a couple of poems that I didn't write them at the same time or nor did I intend them to be a pair but um, in hindsight they kind of go together because uh, one is about uh, the first one is about forgetting and this uh, forgetting things, and the second one is about, in a sense, not being able to forget anything. Um, and the poem about, uh, called it's called Forgetfulness, and it started out when I read a article uh, called I think it was called Literary Amnesia, and it just um, expressed this writer's shock at the fact that he had spent a good deal of his life uh, consuming books, and that standing there surrounded by books in his library he was thunderstruck by the realization that he remembered almost zero of <laughs> the contents therein so that got the poem started oh there's one very american uh, reference in here i've learned this that uh, every state in america has a flower that it is it, called a state a state flower we also, every state has an animal and a tree and God knows what else. A bird, too, I think. Uh, and no one knows what these things are, but, you know, that, but that's it. So I, I refer to a state flower. 
and the poem is called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. It is as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye, and you watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. <laughs> and even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L. <laughs> as far as you can recall, well on your own way to oblivion where you will join those who have forgotten even how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and this one, um, I guess the other... <coughs> genesis of this poem, it's called Nostalgia, is, uh, well, you remember the 20th century, partially. Um, and in the 20th century, one thing uh, you might remember is that we were very fond of talking about the past and the recent past in terms of decades. So it was very convenient. We still do about the 20th century. So we talk about the 50s and the 70s and the 80s and how the implication was that every 10 years, everything changed, you know, metaphor, style, morality, fashion. Um, and it was kind of a way of trying to figure out this strange, elusive thing called the past. You know, if you can cut it into these little decade-sized pieces, it became like a commodity you could grasp. And we were always made, I thought, to, to feel kind of nostalgic or bittersweet about the passing of this parade of decades <clears throat> and that's why the poem is called Nostalgia Remember the 1340s? We were doing a dance called the Catapult You always wore brown, the color craze of the decade and I was draped in one of those capes that were popular the ones with unicorns and pomegranates and needlework Everyone would pause for beer and onions in the afternoon and at night, we would play a game called Find the Cow. <laughs> Everything was hand-lettered then, not like today. Where has the summer of 1572 gone? <laughs> Brocade and sonnet marathons were the rage. We used to dress up in the flags of rival baronies and conquer one another in cold rooms of stone. Out on the dance floor, we were all doing the struggle while your sister practiced the Daphne all alone in her room. 
We borrowed the jargon of farriers for our slang. These days, language seems transparent, a badly broken code. The 1790s will never come again. <laughs> Childhood was big. People would take walks to the very tops of hills and write down what they saw in their journals without speaking. Our collars were high, our hats were extremely soft. We would surprise each other with alphabets made of twigs. <laughs> it was a wonderful time to be alive or even dead. <laughs> I am very fond of the period between 1815 and 1821. Europe trembled while we sat still for our portraits. And I would love to return to 1901, if only for a moment, time enough to wind up a music box and do a few dance steps. Or shoot me back to 1922 or 1941. Or at least let me recapture the serenity of last month when we picked berries together and glided through afternoons in a canoe. Even this morning would be an improvement over the present. <laughs> I was in the garden then, surrounded by the hum of bees and the Latin names of flowers, watching the early light flash off the slanted windows of the greenhouse and silver the limbs on the rows of dark hemlocks. As usual, I was thinking about the moments of the past, letting my memory rush over them like water rushing over the stones on the bottom of a stream. I was even thinking a little about the future, that place where people are doing a dance we cannot imagine, a dance whose name we can only guess. Thank you. And I'll just read a couple more, I think, bringing this marathon. I hope none of you have been sitting there for 18 days, <laughs> dying to get back to your lives. Um, uh, well, here's a poem. Um, all these poems lean, poems tend to lean on previous poems, and no one's smart enough just to go into a room and invent literature or poetry, so it's all derivative and this poem is uh, about an it's about a poem it's about a little haiku and um, those little great little exercises I mean great little things in themselves these little kind of bits of amber that capture a moment but also a great exercise is to write haiku I love writing haiku and even even haiku masters say that they like one out of ten is a good average to, to really score a haiku and mine is less than that, but I did inadvertently, uh, I should say, I won this little haiku contest because I sent these haiku out to a magazine called Modern Haiku, and uh, <laughs> rather than Field and Stream, or, and, um, and one day I got a letter from them and it had a check for $25, and I'd, I'd won, I was like the haiku boy of the month or something. I'd, <laughs> the best haiku of the month so um, so I'll, before I read the poem I, I know you want to know you want to hear up you've probably never heard a $25 haiku before <laughs> so this was um, this was my prize winning haiku midwinter evening alone at the sushi bar just me and this eel <laughs> A great deal of personal 
misery in that little poem. <clears throat> so this is um, this poem. It it comes in uh, little three-line stanzas. It has a kind of a haiku-like appearance to it, and it's called Japan. Today I passed the time reading a favorite haiku, saying the few words over and over. It feels like eating the same small perfect grape again and again. I walk through the house reciting it and leave its letters falling through the air of every room. I stand by the big silence of the piano and say it. I say it in front of a painting of the sea. I tap out its rhythm on an empty shelf. I listen to myself saying it, then I say it without listening, then I hear it without saying it. And when the dog looks up at me, I kneel down on the floor and whisper it into each of his long white ears. It's the one about the one-ton temple bell with the moth sleeping on its surface. And every time I say it, I feel the excruciating pressure of the moth on the surface of the iron bell. When I say it at the window, the bell is the world, and I am the moth resting there. When I say it into the mirror, I am the heavy bell, and the moth is life with its papery wings. And later when I say it to you in the dark, you are the bell, and I am the tongue of the bell ringing you, and the moth has flown from its line and moves like a hinge in the air above our bed. Thanks. Thank you. Well, should we just shut this festival down? <laughs> Make it history, okay. Uh, so I'll read. Thank you for being such a, a good audience. And uh, so let's do it here. We'll just uh, put this into the past, get on with our lives. I'm going to finish with a poem called Nightclub. Um, it has just one reference in it uh, that I hope you get, just for your own sake of your own pleasure uh, to a singer named Johnny Hartman who's, uh, do we know Johnny Hartman? He's a jazz singer, died in the 70s I guess, but uh, famous for uh, very mellow renditions, uh, soulful mellow renditions of jazz ballads mostly. So he's mentioned, Johnny Hartman is mentioned in Passing. And again the poem is called Nightclub. You are so beautiful, and I am a fool to be in love with you, is a theme that keeps coming up in songs and poems. There seems to be no room for a variation. I have never heard anyone saying, I am so beautiful, and you are a fool to be in love with me. Even though this notion has surely crossed the minds of women and men alike, you are so beautiful, too bad you're a fool, is another one you don't hear. Or, you are a fool to consider me beautiful, that one you will never hear, guaranteed. For no particular reason this afternoon, I am listening to Johnny Hartman, whose dark voice can curl around the concepts of love, beauty, and foolishness like no one else's can. It feels like smoke curling up from a cigarette someone left burning on a baby grand piano around three o'clock in the morning. Smoke that billows up into the bright lights, 
while out there in the darkness some of the beautiful fools have gathered around little tables to listen, some with their eyes closed, others leaning forward into the music as if it were holding them up, or just twirling the loose ice in a glass, slipping by degrees into a rhythmic dream. Yes, there is all this foolish beauty, born beyond midnight, that has no desire to go home, especially now, when everyone in the room is watching the large man with the tenor sax that hangs from his neck like a golden fish. He moves forward to the edge of the stage and hands the instrument down to me and nods that I should play. So I put the mouthpiece to my lips and blow into it with all my living breath. We are all so foolish, my long bebop solo begins by saying, so damn foolish, we have become beautiful without even knowing it. Thank you. Suddenly, this reading has come to an end. <laughs> Billy Collins will be signing his books in the signing tent next door, so if you have books or questions for him, that's a place to go. I think just to adapt the lines of, um, from one of your poems, uh, the sources of our hearts are full of milky admiration. Thank you so much for this evening.